I'd like you to open to Matthew chapter 28. This is our fourth message, and it's titled, For Those Who Want to Be a Disciple. Why would you title a message in a church setting for those who want to be a disciple? Don't all church members want to be disciples? Well, obviously, uh, they don't because the things that require us to do and receive from the Lord in order to be a disciple, most Christians turn away from it and they don't want to hear it. But that's the last days. It would be like that in the end time. The Bible says in the last days, men will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to fables because there's things that God says that are his requirements to us in order to be what he wants us to be, that we don't want to pay that kind of price, not in this modern age. We want somebody to reinterpret the scripture for us so that it doesn't say that. So that what I'm doing, which is not what I should be doing, is okay to do. And when somebody says, no, you can't do that, that's not a right way to live. That's not a right attitude. Those are not good choices you're making in your life. We get offended by that. That's why a lot of churches get rid of their preacher, get rid of pastors, because they're not saying what people want to hear. And yet the Great Commission is, in Matthew 28 here, is going to all the world and, and make disciples, to teach them, to observe whatever Jesus said. We have to learn ourselves what he said. When we learn what he said, then we are to live it ourselves and be an example and to teach others. And if we don't do that, we can't be a disciple. And that's how difficult this gets. Now, this message today, this little series, is not for those who are just thrill seekers. It's not for the nominally happy, insincere church member. These are great demanding things that the Lord says here. They are absolutes. For example, the first thing he said for those who want to be a disciple, in John chapter 8, verse 31 and 32, Jesus said, Jesus said, if you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed. Now, it's a matter of choice. Jesus said, this is the right choice. My word, which describes my way. Now, if you want to go my way, you'll have to go according to the Bible, not according to human opinions and intellectual bigness. You'll have to reduce yourself or condense yourself to this word and say, well, if the word says it, that's the way we live. No matter what anybody thinks about it, that is the only truth there is, that is for us. This is the unchanging truth of, of the ages, the Bible. And if you continue in my word, if you make that decision, that choice, if you're willing to wrestle with things that you got to deal with in order to do things God's way, then he said, you will be his disciple. A change will take place in your life. Things will happen. See, the alternative is Romans eleven twenty two, The goodness and the severity of God. He said, if you continue in his goodness, if you continue in his goodness, then goodness will come to you. But it's a choice you have to make. God said, this is the way. Walk ye in it. It's a decision you have to make. And if you're willing to make that decision, then you'll find grace and favor of God in your life. 
when you don't make that decision, you get so frustrated with religion that nothing seems to work. It's just so much and going and doing and busyness and activities and building and painting and fixing and planning. And yet you're just never happy spiritually. Something is lacking in your life because the only way that's ever going to work in this world to bring lasting peace and joy is to live on God's terms. That's what it means to continue in his word. Second thing that we said was that in Luke 14, you might as well turn to that because our text will come from there today. In Luke 14, Jesus requires total loyalty to his way. To Jesus and his way, total loyalty. Loyalty. Remember these words in Luke chapter 14 and verse 26. If any man come to me and hate not his mother and his father and his brother and his sister and his own life also, his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. That doesn't mean that we hate and despise or view as despicable our wife and children, our friends. But it means that when it comes down to the way we live, it's like the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before you, not the God of your family, the God of your job, your career. Not anything else is allowed to stand before you to gain your admiration before God. And people do it all the time. People will miss church for a lot of things because they found something they have more pleasure in, something they would rather do. A lot of things in people's lives are planned without God in mind because he doesn't weigh in on what's important to them, what's absolutely essential. But Jesus said, again, Luke 14 and verse 26, if any man come to me and puts anything else before me, if he puts anything before his allegiance and his loyalty to me, he cannot be my disciple. Which is one of the reasons I as personally, I cannot pledge to me, I cannot pledge allegiance to a flag or to a country because I'm a citizen and a sojourner of another kingdom. I'm passing through, I live in this country and I pray for it. I pray for its leaders and I pray for God to bless us with good ones because we live better when we have good leadership. But my allegiance is to Jesus Christ. And if the price that I pay for that is jail or loss or some kind of a intrusion into my life, that's the price I pay. Praise the Lord. I'll do it joyfully. But I can have no other gods, nor can you. You can have nothing between your allegiance to God and anything else. Not laws that are made that require you to take an oath. You can't do that and, and because I, I have already committed myself to God. I won't do that. He said not to do that in the Word. And see, that, that begins to weigh on people's lives. Well, what do you mean everybody does? I don't care if everybody does. What everybody does makes nothing right. The only thing that makes anything right is the Word of God. You have to reach this conclusion yourself. I've told you what I do. But he said this is something that you have to do, total loyalty to Jesus. Last time in verse 27, the next verse, he says it this way, and whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Oh, but brother, I've gone forward, I've joined church, and I'm busy and active. I'm a pastor. I don't care. It doesn't matter. None of those things make you a Christian. None of those things make you automatically a disciple. Discipleship is a choice. 
God gives you the right choices. The world gives you alternative choices. God says this, and the world says, hath God said. Now, you're going to make one of those choices. The broad way is more glamorous and easier, more fun, more people. And the narrow way isolates you and, and sets you up for persecution and whisperings and murmurings and talk. The choice is still yours. You're going to have to make the decision that God gives you to make. If you want to live on his terms and be a disciple, you'll have to live the way he said in the Bible that we should live. Now, last time on this subject, this is a difficult subject for a lot of people about bearing a cross. It sounds very simple, but a cross was a symbol of death. It was where people died. It was a place of agony and crucifixion. There was nothing pleasant, kind, or glamorous about a cross. Jesus endured the shame of the cross, despising all of that. In the garden, he said, if there's any other way to take this from me, do it. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine. The cross was nothing fun for Jesus. It lasted a long time that day. It was very difficult to be beaten the way he was and then shamefully treated the way he was and then eventually hung on a cross until he died. I mean, I wouldn't have wanted to watch that, but I'm glad that he did that. Because had he not done that, we could not have a reason to be here today. But the cross for us in our lives, he says, you've got to bear your cross every day. And in Luke chapter 9 and verse 23, he adds this to it. He said, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily, daily and follow me, which means that every day is an experience. Every day we walk, God has something to deal with us during the day. I remember in this recent trip, we came back from Colorado. It seemed like from the time we got there until the time we got home, there were so many things to think about. There are times just up in the mountains, just being able to just think, be still and think about so many things. Some things were difficult things. Some things were, whoa, but just things to think about. You can see flaws. You can see weaknesses in yourself or in others. And you see what's coming, you think, and planning for it and who's going to make it and who's not even trying to make it. Just a good time of thinking. But I remember in all the process of thinking up there, I thought of how often in all of our lives, the biggest problem we have is ourself. It's the me, my, and mine. It's that part of me which wants to exalt itself and become a this and make myself a this and gain approval and find acceptance, everything you try to arrange your life so that, well, parents want their kids like this too, to become somebody special. I don't want to promote that. I want you to go to a cross and crucify your flesh with the affections and the lust thereof. Everything that you plan to make of yourself, I want you to cast it on an altar of sacrifice and give it up and become as it is a nobody. Like Paul the Apostle said, who are we? We're nothing. Paul said, I am the least of all the apostles. I am the chief of sinners. I have nothing whereof to boast. He says that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 
We have nothing to boast of in this life. He says that in Luke 17, we are still unprofitable servants. We're not here to make a thing for God. We're here to be used of God any way he wants to use us. We are here as his people to represent him and show that, that it is no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. There's a death that has to take place to all of me that gets in the way of God so that Jesus Christ can manifest himself in our life. That's why we can forgive. We quit whining. We quit having these moments of bitterness and anguish. We begin to lay down all of these things where we want to fight and hold resentment against others who offended us years ago or that bunch or them or him or her or that ex or whatever. And you lay it all before the Lord and you say, how would you deal with this, Lord? What would Jesus do? And that's the attitude you must take up. And it's not easy. If you think it's easy, keep living because it isn't easy. But self is the only thing in my life. It's the only thing in your life. What is called self? Flesh. That part of you that sins. The only thing in you that the devil can touch is flesh. Because your flesh is you. That's the part that's tempted. The lust of the eyes. The pride of life. You know what the devil said to Jesus? Throw yourself down from the temple. Then everybody will go, whoa, then you'll have a great following. Here in Luke 14, great crowds followed him. What a time to build a mega church. And yet he turned to his disciples and said the things we're talking about here. If any of you want to come after me, here's what you have to do. With regard to yourself and your ways, your family, which is so important to you, and it is. You can put nothing in front of me. Everything pales in the light of serving me. And if you can't do that, you cannot be my disciple. And all of his promoters are saying, we can't have a church if you're talking like that. And he says, and whoever he is of you that does not take up his cross and follow me and deny himself, you can't be my disciple either. Think, Man, what a message. Why don't you kind of power down a little bit? Because this message is not for thrill seekers. It's not for the insincere. It's not for those who just want a little fun and time with the Lord. This is for those who really want to serve and to follow Jesus. But your biggest problem in this room this morning, the reason you fret so much or you whine or you cry, or you're mad or you're upset, is because of self. And if you don't crucify it, if you're not willing as an act of your will in response to God, a loving response to God, crucify your flesh. You can't be a disciple. You can be a church member. You can go to any church you want to and probably do well. I was in the Christian church all my life, and nobody cared whether you were a disciple or not. We were called the disciples of Christ. Looked up in the dictionary once, what's the Christian church believe? We have no creed but the Bible. I look back through the years, they didn't know what the Bible meant. Had no clue what was in the Bible and didn't want to know. And when you did begin to get specific about it, church split. Because that's the nature of a man who becomes religious but not spiritual. He wants things his way and not God's way. And he does that because that's self. I like it this way. We do it this way. And we 
And whatever you say, it's self. That's the only thing that the devil can touch. He can touch you. Well, you shouldn't put up with that. I wouldn't let anybody say that to me. I'll tell you what I'd do to provoke you to do something that Jesus said don't do. Turn the other cheek? Not me. I ain't going to turn the other cheek. I'm going to slap somebody right beside the head. Is that what he taught you to do? Well, I, you know, after all. No, there is no after all. You need to get on the cross. You need to take that attitude and that desire you have to the cross. And the pouting wife or the pouting husband or the abusive husband, it's all because of self. You're like that because you want to be like that. You feel revenge and you feel this and it ain't fair and I'm not going. That's why we fight. That's why churches have people in them that don't speak to each other. Self. Forgiveness doesn't factor in. I have been offended. I don't like what somebody said. And I'm going to have my way. And I, 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 I. Now, discipleship is an ongoing self-sacrifice. Our message today in verse 33 is a continuation of this same theme. But with this in view. In verse 33, Luke 14. He says... So likewise, whosoever he be of you, anybody in this room, anybody out there in the electronic world, he said, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, can I be my disciple? Now you think of that. In this materialistic age that you're in, this hedonistic, pleasure, fun-loving age that you're in, how does that go over? Whosoever he be of you that is unwilling to forsake all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. If you think all this busyness in church and going to church will get you in heaven, that's not what he said. I'm going to say with the word here. He said, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, cannot be my disciple. Now, first of all today, what does it mean? What are we talking about here? To forsake all. A forsaking would mean to abandon, to turn away from it, to walk away from it. Well, you think of some of us that are older, we spend a long time in our life acquiring things. Try and not let things control us, but we have bought things. We've been, had the money to do things, made enough money to have something and, and gain some time or a little property or a home or a car or clothes, toys for the kids, vacation. I mean, we're not exactly down and out in America. So God has blessed us, and does that mean now that this message comes, we have to give everything away Turn away from everything. He told that rich young ruler, remember the rich young ruler, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, what does the word say? What did the commandments say? He said, I've kept all these from my youth. And he said to him, he said, one thing you lack. What is it, sir? I'll do it. He says, sell all that you have. Give it to the poor. And then come after me. And the Bible said that man went away sorrowful because, see, there was a grip and a hold that all the things you worked hard for that you see as yours because you have done it, you worked for it, you got it. God wasn't in this equation the way you're thinking. I got it my way, like Frank Sinatra. 
I did it my way, and I worked hard for it, and bless God, nobody's going to take it away from me, and I'll fight for my... And you don't realize that it's God who gives. It is God who is able to make these things happen. God could have shut you down. You could have been born in a, another part of the world where you have nothing, never learned anything, not even saved. But isn't it good when grace creeps into your life, brings you this, brings you that, opens your eyes, you're blessed of God, and you can see it? All that I have and all that I ever hope to have will be given to me by the Lord. He may bless the talent I have. He may bless my strength. He may give me good health and enable me and inspire me. This is God behind the scenes to do things. But when the day is over, may I always recognize that I am what I am by the grace of God. And that what has been given to me, including the air I breathe, has come to me from the Lord. May I always be able to do that. But what does forsaking all mean? Are the Catholics right on this when the priests take a vow of poverty to go into the ministry and learn all of whatever they learn, which is not much, and they take a vow of poverty to have nothing, to own nothing their whole life? Of course, one of the richest churches in the world. But... Is that what he means? Is that how you fulfill Luke 14, to take a vow of poverty and to get rid of everything that you have? Does that mean that the abundant life message is really not for us? Or having good success in life, as he said in Joshua 1, is that not for us? Have we been misled if we say that, that we should be blessed or doing well? In Luke 18, verse 18, Luke 18 and 18, didn't he say here, well, I just quoted, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Look at verse 22. Now, when Jesus heard these things, he said unto him, Yet lackest thou one thing, sell all that you have, and distribute to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. And when he heard this, he was very sorrowful because he was rich. And when Jesus saw that he was very sorrowful, he said, How hardly shall they that have riches enter to the kingdom of God? Let's look at the other side of this for just a moment. Is Jesus telling us that riches can play a role in preventing you from being what God wants you to be? They sure can. They don't have to. They don't have to because the Bible speaks of a man named Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 19, the very next chapter over, 19 and verse 8. Zacchaeus, a little man that climbed up a tree, he was little, he wanted to see Jesus. And when Jesus came by, Jesus looked up and saw him. And he said to him, Zacchaeus, come down. I want to eat in your house. I want to have lunch with you today. And when Zacchaeus had him in his home and the door was open to Jesus and he came in, look at verse 8. He said, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have taken anything from any man by false accusation, I restore unto him fourfold. And Jesus said unto him, no, no, not half, all. No, because it's not so much what you have, it's how what you have has you. And he was willing to let go. He said, here, half of it. And if I've taken anything by false accusation, I restored fourfold. You know what Jesus answered to him? Because of your attitude about that and the control that that has on most all this world, money, 
and possessions and what you think it does for you to make you who you think you are. He said, this day salvation is coming to thy house for as much as he also is the son of Abraham. Salvation has come to your house today. Why? Is it just because of money? No, there was obviously a deeper change in his heart. But that change in his heart also changed his attitude towards money. He could give up at least half of what he had and restore what the other people didn't have. So it doesn't mean that to forsake all, you have to just suddenly, now that you're a Christian, give away everything that you have and live in poverty. That's not what it says. 1 Timothy 6.17 says, Charge them that are rich in this world not to trust in uncertain riches or to be heady or high-minded, but to trust in the living God. See, it's not wrong for you to have money, but it's not right for money to have you. People become stingy and tight, and they won't give because of the control and the grip that money has on them. Well, if I do that, I won't have anything. Years ago, when I first started what I'm doing, the first church I went to, Lancaster Baptist Church up in southern Indiana, my first meeting, hired, called meeting. I spoke in our church once or twice. But during that time in my life, before I think it was before I left or right after I came back from that week-long meeting. That's an interesting story in itself. But I remember examining myself and that time of my life when God was dealing with me about things like what I'm talking about. I got a tape in the mail, you know, somebody's message just came out, and this message, one statement, one little sentence in the tape had to do with, oh, no man, anything. Oh, no man, anything but to love him. You know, I can quote that. But when I begin to examine that, I ask myself, well, now, do I owe anybody? Am I in debt? Yeah. Well, how much am I in debt? Well, won't you look and see? Well, I'm afraid to. Won't you look and see? You want to walk with the Lord? Have integrity. God knows your heart anyway. So I began to look at the bills, at, you know, the debt. There was a couple of credit cards and then an automobile. I added those up, and they were a certain amount, like twelve or $1,500. I'd also sold a house in Sellersburg in Indiana, and I had some money left over from the uh, equity, and it was that much. You see, I can get out of debt. Now, I can do what the Bible says. I can owe no man anything like the Bible says I should. But if I do, I won't have anything. Now, the mind, my mind did, said, well, now, if I don't have anything, what if something comes up and you need some money and you don't have it? Well, that's countered by, aren't you going to trust the Lord with all your heart? Lean not to your own understanding. Aren't you in all your ways going to acknowledge him and count on God? Or are you going to count on your money? Are you going to count on God or are you going to count on what you think is so clever in your life? What are you going to count on? How many of you know that Jesus wants us to trust him with all our hearts? Sometimes we don't really trust him because we don't really have to. Well, you know, push comes to shove, I've got a little something left over, and that's not wrong to have money. It's just wrong for you to count on that to be your savior and your whatever. God wants us to trust him. I paid all my bills. I wrote checks for everything. 
I think I still remember it like this. I get my stories crossed up occasionally, but that's okay. My version is better. <laughs> I was driving to the church. I had no insurance because I just trust the Lord. The angels of the Lord encampeth round about them that fear him, and they shall deliver them. Okay, I'll do that. I'll do that. I won't have any insurance. I won't look to man for anything when I can look to God for everything. I never heard anybody talk like this. Never knew anybody was like this. My parents were concerned about me because I did. I thought, well, the 91st Psalm says, no evil shall befall me. No plague come down my dwelling. He'll give his angels charge over me and they'll keep me in all my ways. Does it? Well, then if he's willing to do that, why do I need to call state or blue or anybody else to take care of me? And it got as quiet where I'd say that as you are now. Ooh. See, that's self. That's the thing that holds us back from trusting God. It's a kind of a fear that I might not be or have what I think I am or what I think I have. Driving down the road. What if you were to have an accident? How would you pay for it? Well, I couldn't. I would have nothing. And I could hear the devil, you're a fool. Well, I'm a faithful fool if I am. What are you going to do if something comes up and you can't afford it? I, well, then I'm going to be able to afford it. You're never going to have anything living like this. You're never going to have anything like this. Seems like Jesus told his disciples in Luke chapter 10 when he sent them out, he said, I send you out without purse, without script, without shoes. Take no bag for your money. Take no bag for provisions, not even sandals. I don't know what that means, but take no shoes and salute no man in the way. I want you to go with the absolute commission from the Lord. I want you to go wherever I send you without the ability to take care of yourself because you've got all you need in case it doesn't work. And he sent them out that way. And he told them, if you go into a house and they don't accept you, then you shake the dust off your feet and so forth, or the city. And then in Luke chapter 22, he said to them, remember when I sent you out without provisions? Yes, they said yes. He said, did you lack anything? They said no. He said, now he that has a purse, now that he that has a script. See, it wasn't wrong for them to have that, but there was a time they had to go without that in order to trust the Lord. Not your own strength, not your own might, not your own ability to think about stuff and be wise about getting something. Just go with the idea that God will have to make this work. I'm going to trust in the Lord with all of my heart. I've trusted God for my body all these years with no insurance on my life, no insurance for my health, unless what that thing the government gave us, I don't know what it is, but I have nothing. I determined years ago I have shredded and thrown away every opportunity for investments, for my tomorrows, my security down the road, for my health, for hospitalization, drug, I've canceled all that because so far as I am concerned, God said he will take care of me. And through my life, many people have considered that to be a foolish thing to do. How foolish it is for you to do that. And yet, I've got scripture, notably Proverbs 3, trust in the Lord with all your heart 
and lean not to all this educated, brilliant understanding that so many people have that will not trust the Lord. I know what people think. I'm not ignorant. I may act that way sometimes, but I'm not really altogether ignorant. But there is something about the work that God does in us that exposes ourselves, flesh, and said, this is your major problem. This keeps you from counting on God to take care of you because you've come to the place where you don't really need God to intervene here because you've got something here. Again, it's not wrong to have. Zacchaeus was a rich man. He didn't have to give away everything that he had. He was doing fine. This business of forsaking all does not mean you have to give up everything you have. There's still an abundant life. Jesus said, I'm come that you might have life and have it abundantly and then forsake it. He didn't say that. But if your abundant life begins to control you and you begin to figure out ways to be more abundant without trusting in God, then you're becoming controlled by the things of this world, money. Let me tell you something, folks. The love of money, the love, the desire to acquire it and have it, and what you think it does for your image is the root of all evil. That's what Jesus said, money. Didn't the Bible say that he gives us richly all things to enjoy? 1 Timothy 6 and 17, think about it. Don't trust in riches. Don't be heady and high-minded like money does to people. You think you're somebody. People think you're somebody. Look how far you've come. Look who you are. They promote that. This is the work of the devil. Look at you. Wow, you're somebody. Whoa. Here was John the Baptist, a great anointing. He wouldn't even come in town. Who is this John the Baptist? He's some fellow out there. A lot of people are following him. Well, where is he? Nobody knows. He doesn't have a church. Where would I find him? You've got to walk out there in the wilderness to look for him. Now, I've been in the Judean wilderness a little bit. I don't want to go any deeper. You had to go hunt for this guy. He didn't care if you wanted to hear him or not. Somebody would hear him, and God would send people to him. He wasn't trying to get a crowd. wasn't trying to make a big church. He just simply had a message, and he gave it. And he was the greatest, Jesus said, of all the prophets. He wasn't promoting himself. There was Paul who said, My speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom. His adversary said, Look, his speech is contemptuous. His body stature is weak and little. Why would you want to listen to somebody like that? Could it be that God allows people to become like that and to be brought down low like that to where they're not looked upon as anything to follow, and yet God's message that he gives to those people is compelling? We want so badly to be something, and yet what God wants us to focus on really and truly, is discipleship. I just want to be the kind of follower that the Bible tells me I should be and the kind of follower that Jesus is making of me. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I. But Christ liveth in me. God's goal, the measure of the stature of of the fullness of Christ in your life. To be like Jesus, to be like Jesus, all I ask to be like him, 
and turn the other cheek and be smitten and not defend myself and not make a name for myself? Then the Bible say he made himself of no reputation, but humbled himself. Is that not the same thing he wants to do for us? Is it? Did not Job think he was important? Read chapter 29 of Job. There's almost 50 personal pronouns where I did this and I was that and I did this and I did that and this is not fair. And when God spoke to Job and Job saw who he was, finally, finally saw the kind of person he really was in God's eyes, Job humbled himself and said, you know, I, I've never seen you like I see you now. I am nothing but a fool. He humbled himself in sackcloth and ashes lowered himself to the very dust of this earth because that's what he felt like and saw himself like that. And God raised him up and gave him more than he ever had. See, he had way more than he ever had, but the way more than he ever had never controlled him anymore, never made him think more highly of himself than he ought to. And how often does the devil promote you and me to make us feel important? The preachers are too big to go to a small church to share a message. We'd never be caught in a little storefront church downtown where the 10 or 11 people are in there and lights are dim and the preacher is working as hard as he can to bring a message. Sometimes the most pure message in the world is some of those little bitty churches where a man's heart has nothing to do with money or crowds or fame or fortune. But just a moment I have to declare the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's all they want. That's what they do. But our attitude, let me tell you something about your attitude. Your attitude about your possessions, things that are yours, things that you have obtained in life. Turn with me just a moment to First Chronicles chapter 29. First Chronicles chapter 29. Let me read something. You follow me. First Chronicles chapter 29 and verse 9. Now, David is collecting stuff that the people are willingly giving for the building of the tabernacle. They did not float alone and go to the local bank and plead for a little help. They did not go into debt several million dollars in order to build a fancy building to meet him. Here's what they did. They said, God wants us to build him a house. This is how he wants us to do it. He wants all of you that have a willing heart to contribute to this. You do whatever you want to do. Nobody will know. You just bring it and drop it in a pile. And it begins by saying, then the people rejoiced after they gave so much. He said, then the people rejoiced for they had offered willingly because with a perfect heart, they offered willingly to the Lord. And David the king also rejoiced with great joy. Wherefore, David blessed the Lord before all the congregation. And David said, now listen to these words, Blessed be thou, Lord God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Thine, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heaven and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Verse 12, this is for us. Both riches and honor come of thee. Now stop for a moment. Riches and what? 
So it comes from God, doesn't it? Not your education, not your talents, but God. All right? Both riches and honor come from thee. And thou reignest over all, and in thy hand is power and might. And in thy hand it is to make great and to give strength unto all. He can do that. Now, therefore, our God, we thank thee and praise thy glorious name. Here we are. But who am I? And what is my people that we should be able to offer so much willingly after this sort? For all things come of thee, and of thine own have we given thee. How do you read that? Did he say that all that we have came from God? And all that we have offered so willingly is what God inspired us to do, but it's still his? He owns it all. Everything in your closet, in your barn, your garage, in your pocket now is God's. It's all his. You get to use it on this earth to enjoy and to help and to glorify God with. There's no dread in giving to God what God wants. If he wants your life, if he wants your child to go and disappear in some African jungle for the rest of his life, never to be seen again, then that's a great offering. You've raised up a citizen of the kingdom, and God's going to use him. Oh, but I, want to, I know you do. We would all. We don't want to be parted like that. But if God wants them, they can have them. Amen. Everything we have is God's. Our attitude has to be that when I look in the checking account and I say, you know what, I can buy this, that's fine. Just pray about it and then do what God tells you to do. It's all his money, isn't it? It is his. Has God exalted you and given you a good verbal talent? Has he made you sort of stand out as somebody special that people think is special? Has he? Could he? Nah, I got you now. Then he could do that. Did that kind of honor come from God? Then he should never try to take credit for it, should he, or her? You see, we have come to the place as we bear our cross and come after the Lord. We look into God as to what he wants from us in our life. If there's anything that is keeping us from following him, surrendering to him, we forsake it. You can let go of it. It doesn't mean you have to give away everything because there's a lot of well-to-do people who aren't controlled by money. They're just not. A man that paid for our trip to India back in the 80s and a journey I took to India, the country, not only did he pay the whole bill, but he didn't mind paying for everything. He didn't say, man, how much is it? How much? He just simply whatever came up, that's the bill he paid. He never said a word about money. I went to speak up in where he lives once. Somebody up there invited me to come to a full gospel businessmen's meeting back in those days. And he came to my room after it was over and handed me a big envelope. And inside the envelope was the title to his Lincoln Continental. And the keys were in it. He said, it's outside if you want to go look at it. See ya. Walked out of the room. Didn't wait for praise and honor. Oh, you know, he just said, this is something the Lord wanted me to do. Just very humble man. He was an Amish man, I think, and uh, had an Amish name, and he 
gave me that and just friendly and kind and walked off. Brother Yoder, that's a good Amish name. And you would have never known he was a well-to-do man because he didn't act like he was. He didn't look like he was. But the business he had was flourishing, and I did well driving that car home. <laughs> it was the fanciest car I think I'd ever had. I'm talking about moonroof, which is a waste of everything that the industry does, but had a moonroof and all that other stuff. I'm just saying that there are people who are not controlled by anything. God can tell them to do this or do that, and they will do it. And they don't dread doing things God's way. They don't dread forsaking something that has a grip on them when God shows them the grip. How subtle the devil is in promoting things that God has to judge. Things in our lives that we just can't walk, like that rich young little boy, just so sorry, we can't do that, I can't give. Okay. Or, or going to a church that promotes discipleship and requires you to continually change. Oh, I don't know about all that stuff. I ain't just something that holds Christians back. It prevents us from being all the wonderful things that God wants us to be and going the places he wants us to go. Remember, in Deuteronomy 8.18, the Bible said, it is God who giveth thee power to get wealth. Wealth is not a sin. The part that is a sin is when wealth controls you. That's when it must be forsaken. And if you don't, then you can't be his disciple. He's given us richly all things to enjoy. And we're to use it, not it using us. Remember, the early church, in the early church, they left all, didn't they? The well-to-do, seeing the needs in the church, sold all that they had, sold their lands. Why? So the folks that didn't have anything were put out of their houses and were rejected by their families now that they're Christian. That's still true today over there for a lot of Jewish people. They had nothing. They couldn't even get employed because they were Christians. What are they going to do? God has a plan. He says to this one over here, sell all that you have and take care of your brothers and sisters. Be glad to. You'd be glad to, but that was your inheritance. It's all God's, isn't it? Are you afraid you're going to lose something in this life? The fear of losing something controls thousands of people, millions. Fear we're going to lose our life. He said, you're not even to regard your life as yours. It belongs to God. He bought you with a price. Gives his angels charge over it. Oh, I know, but I'm still afraid. How are you going to please God? How are you going to walk with him with all those things clinging to you? You've got to forsake all of that. We sing a song about fear. And delivered me from all my fears. If you've lost all your fears, you're not afraid of what's going to happen if you don't have what you used to have. You're going to trust the Lord. I will count on God to bring me where I need to be or to be what I should be. Folks, everything belongs to God. Here's what forsaking all means. Forsaking all means that when called upon by God to walk away from or to give up or to leave something behind, you do it joyfully cheerfully and lovingly. You don't get sorrowful because you have to let go of something in your life that is going to keep you from walking with the Lord. You just let go of it. Now, there's three categories I want to talk about here about that. One is the denial of self. 
and the other is self-denial. It has to do with your possessions and your life. None of this is easy, trust me, because we have become so stagnant spiritually through the years and so spiritually complacent into something we figured out as a good enough way that we have left out, in a lot of cases, we've left out the truth of the way God wants us to be. Are you willing this morning, are you here willing to forsake your careers, your designs in life, and your aspirations in order to live the way God wants you to live, if your designs and your aspirations are not in his plans? Think of all the money you spent on college. Think of all the money you spent to become or to gain or to have whatever you have. What if the Lord convicted you personally that what you were doing is not what he wants you to do and he wants you to forsake that? Down in Hopkinsville, Kentucky, a good friend of mine, Bob Amos, he's dead now, a doctor, a surgeon. And I can think of a, a couple of more, but I forget their names. I've had a lot of fellowships through the years with doctors in Christian circles and, and uh, shared with them, and they've shared back with me. I don't have time to share all of this. Some are so interesting. But I, I remember the case of some who left the medical profession. Think of that. Money, prestige, big house, big everything. Big clients, I mean money galore. And yet one day in a simple message, personally became convicted of the fact that if Jesus is our healer, and he said these signs shall follow those who believe, they'll lay hands on the sick and they shall recover, then that's what I'm going to do. I do not believe that the way I'm doing things is the right way. The medical oath, I understand, the Hippocratic oath about Hygieia and Panacea and all the gods and goddess, I will uphold all these things, uphold these laws or these ways and will not practice abortion, as they say, and, and so forth. Take an oath. I swear by Apollo and Hygieia and Panacea and all the gods and goddesses to uphold the law of hypocrisies and so on and so forth. And this doctor, in sharing, became convicted. He said, you know, I, I can't swear allegiance to a system of man, something demonic, hygiene and panacea. I know what hygiene and a, and a pancreas is, <laughs> but how do you swear to that? And all the gods and goddesses that came out of this Greek and Egyptian culture and the Hippocratic Oath and the origins that he was subscribing to, but he didn't know any better. Nobody would ever touch this in a church, never say something like this in a church setting. And yet somebody did. And he got convicted. And he said, I'm getting out. I know personally a lawyer who one time said, you know, I cannot any longer in good conscience stand in a courtroom knowing that the client I'm representing is wrong and giving my best talents to try to make him right because I am deceitful doing it. And I agree one million percent with that. That if I would for money try to make somebody who is wrong right, what a deplorable occupation to have. 
that you're willing to forsake all the things that have the purity and honesty and rightness and give it all up in order for a greasy dollar in a courtroom to make a wrong right? That's no way a Christian should live. You need to forsake that. Now, the ones who do corporation and deeds and so forth, I have no problem with that. I mean, we all need that anyway. Somebody has to deal with us about when we buy something, and we need that. But, but the idea of standing in a courtroom knowing somebody is wrong or being the opposing lawyer and speaking so down and so irritable against somebody, that's not Christian. Any more than me being a politician in a church would be Christian. Pronouncing judgment against some other man. The Bible says speak evil of no man. But nobody wants to hear that at this time of year. That's why we don't do it. Well, who's going to do it? There'll be plenty to do it. You just don't need to do it. Any more than I'd want to be the guy in the prison that pulled the handle that did the execution. It's not my job, not my call. Oh, I made good money. I know you might have made a lot of money, I imagine, but that's not what you should be doing. You need to forsake that. And then the anger trip comes in, the bitterness. Well, I can't believe you'd say that. See, that's self. That's that thing in you that will not go to the cross and die. It opposes God. Now, if you say, well, I'm not convicted of that. Well, then that's between you and the Lord then. But your career your loan department operation, the job you have that requires you to talk people into buying your product and then you arrange a loan for them, how can you do that if you, if you don't believe in being in debt yourself? Owe no man anything, and yet you're trying to get somebody to go in debt and owe whoever, whatever, so you can get your money out of it. Something's wrong with that. I'm just talking about forsaking all and what it means. What if my career was boxing, knocking them out, getting them in a corner and wailing the fire out of them in the name of Jesus? You might as well say then the man is head of his house by force and his wife didn't like it. He smacks upside the head in the name of Jesus, woman. Well, you're so deceived you don't know where your face is. You don't know what you're doing. There's just some things that are just so plain to see. There are things that a lot of people do, things that a lot of people have always done that they shouldn't do. What if I was making a lot of money operating a, a bingo joint? Can I do that? Not as a Christian. I need to forsake that. But that's all I've ever done. I know it is all you've ever done. But gambling is not God's way. I mean, I got a hot tip on a horse out the track. That's not Christian. Nothing about gambling is right. God has ordained that by the sweat of his brow, man makes money and lives. Not by taking advantage of people's weaknesses and games of choice. That's not the way a man should live or make his living at all. There's just a lot of people who have found themselves unscripturally married. They won't forsake that either. They can't. They won't. And the very fact that you would say that makes you a target of persecution and everything else. Who wants to hear about the purity of marriage? Well, everybody that's getting married love to hear because they're not paying attention anyway. <laughs> they're all Google-eyed. Oh, yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But it, just some things that God is saying, my church is going to be clean, it's going to be pure, and my people are going to walk in my light. 
See, the way that leads to life is not real wide. It's somewhat narrow. And the reason people can't get through a gate is, is they're too big, too fleshly. The gate is narrow. If you got a 120-pound gate, you can't shove 200 pounds through it. It just won't work. All that extra flesh and stuff that's been added by the world to make you less than what God wants, and yet somebody told you you're all right anyway, and it's going to keep you out of hell. Somebody needs to tell you before you get there, you can't live this way. You can't live the way you're living, do what you're doing, and act the way you act and make it into heaven. You can't do it. I wish I could tell you different, but I don't think I can. Let me give you a big ball of flesh. Let me give you a jug full of flesh. Let me give you a canister of flesh, a big 50-gallon drum of flesh. Dating. That's popular. Dating is popular because that's the way you get close, comfortable, experiment. Get together and love on this one, then get tired of that one. Let's go... Love on this one. Get tired of that one. Love on this one here. And let's go out and let's see how far we can go without. Oh, I couldn't stop. You would have never had that decision to make if you'd left all that alone and waited until you got married. Oh, but who wants to trust God like that? Who wants all your friends say, you don't date? You mean you're still a virgin? Or you don't whatever? What, is that a deplorable thing and a put-down for you to be morally perfect and clean? But the reason people won't do it is because, oh, I'm not going to let that. No, no, oh, no. Oh, no, I'm going to go out. I'm going to do it. I don't care what the preacher says. I don't care what, any, I don't care what God says. I'm going to do it because that's your flesh. That's what keeps you from enjoying things. That's why you're so irritable. You're welcome. And that's why things are not happy and well-to-do in your life. It's because of flesh and self. I want to do it my way, and that's what has to go to the cross. That is what you specifically have to forsake, that thing right there. How many young folks today are willing to trust the Lord for a mate and not experiment with anybody until he or she comes along and then let God confirm that he or she is the right one and then make a decision. Who's willing to do that? I personally do not know here or anywhere else a handful. There's always somebody, but not many. Because there's a whole lot of flesh here. There's a whole lot of worldly being like everybody else in the world, lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh. I wonder what it's like. I wonder if I can kiss like that. And you watch them on TV and movies kiss and trying to bite each other's faces off, and you think that's, that's not love. That's lust. And a lot of people think they're in love with somebody. They're in lust with somebody. It's just this thing, am I normal? Am I all right? Parents feel like that about their kids. He had had a date. I wonder if he's all right. Because he said, I'm going to wait for God to bring the right one in my life. Well, you're 18 years old. You're not even, you're 20 now. And you're not, you're 20? How old? I said, I'll trust the Lord. And if God doesn't bring somebody in my life, then I will serve him with the rest of my life. And if I never get to experience all the unhappiness that people have, I mean, if I never get to experience marriage, then fine. I can tell you all this from experience, not from being married, but from my experience with people. 
talking to many, many people in my life. I would rather be single and never married than to be in some of these marriages that I've seen people in my life. Marriage has made a lot of people, men and women, so miserable and so bothered that they can't even be spiritual. They're just bogged down in this and that and everything. She's always in He's always in it. You would be much better off if you sit here with a sweet smile on your face, single, wishing I'd have gotten married. Let me tell you all something. There's more to life than being married. Thank you. Marriage is a good thing. God ordained it. He has a purpose in it. But first of all, forsaking means are you willing to forsake your goals and aspirations and interests and they conflict with his? Secondly, are you willing to forsake your bonding and affections for your possessions? Are you willing to forsake your possessiveness to your possessions? Could it ever be that God would want you to give away or give up something that you really have deep affection for? First of all, can you have deep affection for things? A lady that Bonnie and I knew years ago had as an inheritance a little gold four-leaf clover. I mean, it was gold. It was kind of heavy, and it was worth something. And we've been talking about, in that time, about occult items, things that represent a dark power. What does a four-leaf clover mean? Four-leaf clover. People look for them. What are they for? They're to bring good luck. Well, luck is not Christian. We don't depend on luck. Whoa! We don't do that. We trust in God. We don't need luck. And luck was appealing to another source other than God for something good to happen. And you need to forsake that. Well, she was willing to. She brought us this four-leaf clover, and she said, what should I do with this? And what happened was, but she dropped the thing, I think the next day or so or the next week, she dropped it, and one of the petals broke off. It was a three-leaf clover. <laughs> I don't know if she sewed the little piece or what, but... But I, she said, now what do I do? It's a three-leaf clover. I said, whatever's in your heart to do, I am not your conscience. But you see, there comes a time in which our possessions begin to own us. You just bought a brand-new truck, and a neighbor wants to borrow it. I had this happen once, a long time ago. Somebody wanted to borrow the truck. I needed to go to the Wadi Dump. If you're out there in the electronic world, ever come to Kentucky, go to the Wadi Dump, all right? And they wanted to borrow my truck, go to the Wadi Dump. I said, sure. You know, and they brought it back. And I remember when I got it back, got home, the driver's side on the back, the paint was just scratched all the way across the side of it. I mean, it just wasn't new anymore. I remember looking at that, being a preacher, going, what in the world? That doesn't mean you're really mad. It just means you're kind of hyper at the moment. You say, what in the, <laughs> what in the world? And I looked along the side, and it was all rough. You could feel the rough edges. I don't think I said much, except I said to the person later, what would you take to dump? Oh, a bunch of old carpet and stuff we'd taken out of a house or something. Rough carpet. And to take carpet out of a truck, you don't pull it out the back because that's too easy. 
You pull over the side and let that old carpet scrape over the side. Well, I needed that. And I thought, okay. Now, do I go, I cannot believe you borrowed my truck and Drew scratched the side. Man, what's wrong? We can't use it. Oh, what's wrong? I could have done that, I guess. But that needs to die. How many of you know that needs to die? But that's not an example of Christianity. Sometimes Christianity is like, like humming. Y'all you, you, hum. Mm -hmm. And you look up at that and you feel like going, hey, and you go, mm -hmm. <laughs> so I pull it. Oh, man. But I can honestly say I live with, all right, fine, fine. I asked Bonnie one time, I like to keep my car clean. I do. It's not a fetish. It's just I like the fact that God gave me something nice, and I like to keep it nice. It's part of a testimony. Leave it that way. <laughs> Bonnie and I were going somewhere on a trip. I had a Lincoln. It says 1973 Lincoln is a town car. I just cleaned it up. It was so clean. I got in the car, and I had a cup of coffee. I said, here, hold this for me just a minute. And I did something in the car there and put it in gear to take off. I reached over to get my coffee. And she was going. <laughs> now, I knew what that look was. <laughs> See, it's really hard to hold a cup more than 10 seconds. That's hard to do. Have you all know I'm being ugly right now? <laughs> so she just set the thing down on the floor there, you know, and I took off. It just went back under the seat. Well, that's all right. That's where all the stuff is. It makes the seats go up and down. That's all right. And there's a little steam coming up under there. Smell like a coffee shop. And I looked at that, and I took the cup that was empty. I was trying to think of a song to hum. And so... Drove up the road, and Pete never said a word. And I remember I reached over, and I, see, I'm dying to this. I reached over and pinched her on the cheek, and she said, praise the Lord. <laughs> <laughs> there comes a time in your life that things that you just cannot stand, you know, ask my children ever growing up getting in a clean van with dirty feet or, or muddy shoes. You better get those feet clean before you get in this van. And none of this bouncing on the seat with your shoes on, uh-uh, because -uh, Daddy might, oh, we, we pull off the road and make a speech. I don't mean you should allow that anyway. I don't like to see kids jumping on couches or putting their feet on furniture. Now, you can do it in your house. Don't do it in mine. You're welcome. There comes times in our life in which we realize that things that upset us so easily are not worth upsetting us. And the only way they will lose their power to upset you is when you crucify your flesh with the affections. You just kind of don't say anything for a while, be real still, and realize, you know, this doesn't mean anything. The coffee's under the seat. Nobody will ever see it. They'll want a cup of coffee when they get in here. They'll smell it, you know, overall. And it never showed. Nobody ever saw it. But God uses that to deal with you. Now, I'm not near done with this. And if you're back here next week, I want to finish this. But I want to tell you in closing that God is not going to leave his people alone. If you don't want to be dealt with, you'll cut and run and find excuses. That's fine. But somebody wants to say, God, here I am. Open me up. Expose me. I want to be cleansed. I want to be made right. 
I want to be purged. I want the refiner of silver in Malachi. I want to be refined and made clean before God. I don't want to think I'm somebody that I'm not. I don't want to make myself of any reputation. I want to crucify my flesh until it's no longer I who live, but Christ who is a response in my life. Amen. Amen. Bow your heads with me. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, we give you thanks this morning for bringing us on this good journey of life. We thank you for your kindness and your thoughtfulness towards us, your grace and your mercy. We thank you that you do not leave us alone, that you give us things to think about and then things to deal with. These people before whom I stand are not my people, Lord, they're your people. Everything that we have is not ours, it's yours. Find amongst us people that you can use who will not fall apart, who will not collapse in the heat of the battle, but who will live as Jesus would live and overcome. Bless us that way, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you stand to your feet? Just you.